Welcome to the Tactics Meeting Podcast, Episode 4, Community Messaging, for February 1st, 2021. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Before we get to this week's amazing guest, let's stop and take a minute for safety. Falls are a leading cause of injury and death in the workplace. 37% of fatal falls occur from falling off roofs, while 20% are falling off of scaffolds and 15% from ladders. 35% of non-fatal falls occur from ladders, while 7% occur from stairs. I personally slipped on stairs in 2020, which resulted in seven broken ribs, a broken scapula, and a punctured lung. These are significant injuries. Be aware of your surroundings. Always use a handrail when going up and down stairs. Always maintain three points of contact, two feet, one hand, two hands, one foot, when climbing up a ladder and wear fall protection when working at heights above four feet. Always remember that safety is our number one priority. Now let's get to this amazing episode. Today's expert is Suzanne Lagoni from Nexus Northwest. Suzanne, a longtime friend of mine, my crisis communication guru. She's the person that I have on speed dial to be my public information officer in the event of an oil spill. So I'm excited to have her. Suzanne Lagoni, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Dan. And uh, before we get started, I wanna thank you for uh, giving birth, I guess, to this podcast. The subjects that you're covering are very interesting. You've got a lot of my friends and colleagues lined up to, uh, to speak with you over the next few weeks. And I think you're doing a real service to responders and to the public to better understand just exactly what it is that we do when uh, the siren goes off. So I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. So today's topic is going to be sending a clear message to your community during a response. And we've said a million times, and you had to pound it into my head uh, in, in, in the past, that you could do the most impressive job ever seen of cleaning up the oil and managing the response. But if you can't tell that story, you can become a failure in the eyes of the public. And when I was a response manager responsible for actually operating and managing equipment, I thought cleaning up the oil was the most important thing. And and I don't want to imply to any of our listeners that we shouldn't be cleaning up the oil. That's no, not my point not. at no. all. No. But the idea that it was so important to, to get out and tell that story, and not only tell that story, but provide information to the public ab- about uh, where to go for help, the uh, information about wildlife, all these pieces that but people need to understand, we have to send that information out. And who Indeed. does that? Our, our public information officer and our joint information center. 
So I'm excited to talk about that. But before we jump into those details, I'd like to ask you uh, how you got into this oil spill crisis communication work in the first place. In the first place. Well, it actually goes way back to the uh, late 1970s and early 1980s. And uh, I was uh, a reporter by training. I've got a degree in journalism and I've done uh, graduate study in journalism law and natural resources. Uh, so I started as a reporter and uh, I covered an awfully lot, not necessarily oil spills, but an awfully lot of crisis, crisis events over the period of time that I reported. I did primarily television and uh, some public radio, a uh, little bit of newsprint, but primarily I was a television reporter in uh, Montana and also in Washington State uh, before I moved on then to uh, another area that is fraught with crisis a lot of the time. And I was a political communications person. I was communication director for a US Senator in Washington, DC and chief of staff for that Senator. So you always uh, knew that when you came into the office every morning that something could boil up and you were going to have to be able to, as you said, Dan, tell the story, get out information. So I did that for a number of years uh, and then transferred into corporate communication and uh, was recruited by ARCO, a company that no longer exists, just kind of um, uh, a history that is now BP when uh, the companies merged back in the early 2000s. But I was with them when they were ARCO, uh, first in Montana and then up in Alaska. Actually did my first oil spill drill in Valdez, Alaska in 1994. It was only the second post-Open 90 exercise. And or I, I think probably most of your listeners appreciate that OPA 90 is the Oil Pollution Act that was um, uh, passed by Congress after the Exxon Valdez. So this was the second big exercise after the Exxon Valdez, and the exercise was in Valdez, Alaska. So we were testing a lot of systems in that exercise. And one of them was communication. We had a huge chip. And Again, uh, I should define, not use acronyms, and if I'm going to use them, I need to define them, but AJIC is the Joint Information Center, which is part of uh, Incident Command, and we'll talk about that again in a few minutes, but um, we had a, a Joint Information Center of, I think, 30 or 40 people in that exercise, and we were just testing systems to see if... Uh, we could quite frankly do um, a, a little better job than was done during the Exxon Valdez. Um, I want to go back to your initial comment about you can have the best oil, oil spill response in the world. You can pick up all the oil, which of course we know you never pick up all the oil. But if you don't get your story out, you're, you're going to fail. And that's what a lot of what happened to Exxon during the Exxon Valdez. So we were, we were trying to get some good systems in place. And of course, uh, again, year 1994, that meant we got our information out of Valdez, Alaska by fax. We did not have, <laughs> we did not have cell phones. We did not have a website. All the things that are so standard now didn't exist in 1994. So what we had to do, and uh, 
I'll, I'll continue the, the saga here as we go along, but what we had to do is ensure that we had methods in that uh, command post. And again, one of the first big command posts that we were exercising. So we set up a process that is still used today of having information specialists, runners from the Joint Information Center going to the planning section or to logistics or to operations to gather information that we could then digest, put together and get out to the public. So that's where I really started that kind of work and have been doing that ever since. Uh, did a couple of responses for ARCO. Um, after the merger between ARCO and BP, uh, uh, colleague and friend Joan McCoy and I started Nixus Northwest. Um, so we've been going for 21 years with our little company. We bring in other subject matter experts as we need, depending on what the response is. And uh, we just keep learning. Every time I do something, I learn more. And uh, certainly with the dominance of social media, again, which we'll talk about as we go along, the way we do our work has evolved. But the way we find out and tell a story has not. A story still has elements that um, are going to help a community understand what's going on around them. So that was the long way of saying how I got here, Dan. No, that's great. Yeah, telling that story is is so Im important, and it it you know it, we're always telling stories, right? I mean, we are story telling animals. We, we communicate in in this way, and. You know, the the thing that makes stories interesting, as as, as we all know, is to to have a uh, identify a perpetrator, to to have a, um, a a victim, and to have a rescuer, and to bring those things together. And if you leave one of those elements out of your story, your story is not very interesting. It doesn't. That's right. It doesn't. That's right. It doesn't. So it's not just as as easy as rattling off a list of bullet points. No, and I think that is one of the biggest challenges that that we face uh, in response and in exercises. And we've probably, uh, I know I've probably done more exercises than I've done responses, but I did the big one. I, I worked Deepwater Horizon and where you... Uh, you really fall back on everything that you learned in order to uh, keep your head above the waves in a response like that. Um, but you still have, as you said, you have the same elements, whether it is a 50-gallon spill from uh, a leaky pipe or it is whatever, <laughs> however million, many million gallons it ended up being uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's still the, the tenets of how you interact with the public don't change. Uh, no, there was so much interaction going on. I watched some of the video of some of the town halls when, when I was there. I arrived in Houma, Louisiana for Deepwater Horizon on day 10, and I stayed mm -hmm. 105 days as the on-water recovery group supervisor but there are just so many stories to be told out of out of that that kind of go down a, a, a rat hole. You know, they, they made a movie of Deepwater Horizon, which I have never watched and I don't intend to. 
But the story I would love to see a movie on is the group in Houston who ultimately developed the cap that closed it off. They built <laughs> models. They had testing grounds offshore. I mean, it's got a Apollo 13 kind of flair. So if I could take that story and put it together with Ron Howard, that's a movie I would go and see. You want to go see. That one I'd want to go. Those guys are yeah. like, you know, it's it was a science, it was a huge scientific achievement. And we can't forget that, you know, they when when they're actually putting this stuff together down there, they're doing it in 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 absolute dark mm -hmm. under the pressure of 10,000 feet of water, not like yeah. in space where there's zero pressure. So really yeah, quite amazing. I, I was working in uh, Robert, Louisiana at that time in the Joint Information Center there. And every day we would get up and say, is this going to be the day? Are we going to be able to get it done today? And and we had certain diagrams that had already been prepared to show what was happening. And, and we made it. We made it. But uh, boy, that was a real stressful time, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. It was. But, you know, we, we, we go from response to response. I remember the, the last response that, that you and I did. And this is a nice segue into social media mm -hmm. um, and, and messaging. Uh, we had a, uh, an uh, event, a vessel um, that was pre-boomed, uh, spilled some oil during a transfer. Some of it went on deck, some of it went in the water. We estimated maybe two gallons, three gallons, whatever. Went, went in the water. It was a relatively minor event. The oil was completely contained within, within the boom. It was calm weather. It was nearly slack tide. It was just a, a cleanup. Um, not that uh, an oil spill is not a big deal, but as oil spills go, this was a relatively straightforward mm -hmm. cleanup. It was very early on a Saturday Saturday morning. Happened just before midnight or maybe earlier. I don't remember. I wasn't the initial responder to it. And at that point, the, the internet was quietly slumbering, tucked up in its bed. with its As little, it should be on a Friday night, Saturday morning. With its little watch cap on, right? And uh, then, then Twitter got up and decided to hit it over the head with a stick. And it woke up, kind of pissed off, I think. And it started, you know, retweeting and stuff. And all of a sudden, this relatively straightforward cleanup became a worst case from a communications perspective. Mm -hmm. I remember I was driving up to the command post and I'm thinking, I bet I'm going to need a PIO for this. And I woke you up at, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning. Suzanne, what are you doing today? Like, oh, I think, uh, you know, I'm going to outrun some errands. Like, oh, well, not so much. Uh, I need a little help today. And you ended up in the command post um, and did, correct me if I'm wrong, was it four or was it five on-camera interviews that day? Four, four on-camera interviews that day, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but you're, you're right. And, and one of the reasons for that is it was on a Saturday. Uh, Saturday's always a slow news day. Uh, when I talked initially to uh, the television stations and explained what it was, uh, they said, well, that's, that's not much. In fact, I had, had one reporter I'll share with you, and uh, we're not naming where or what reporter, said, you know, sometimes I spill that much when I change the oil in my car. <laughs> right. 
Right. And, uh, so they were not thinking that this was a big deal. But one station, for reasons that who knows, uh, decided to put their helicopter in the air and get some shots above where it had occurred. And once that happened, then uh, Katie barred the doors. Everybody else had to get their news crews to the location. And uh, we did the interviews and uh, cleaned up the oil. And in, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, everybody was back home again and it was over. But it, uh, it did have a, a, a pretty busy day there on that Saturday afternoon. Yeah, and you did many of the worst case kind of things that we would normally put together in a worst case drill. You guys set up a website. Mm -hmm. Yes. You were responding to social media. Yes. Uh, you were doing on phone and on camera interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the Joint Information Center was concerned, it, it might have been, it might as well have been a million gallons. It was a big. It was a big, it was a big day. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that we did, and I, I want to get into this a little bit as we go along, is we also had a liaison officer present. Uh, because it was, it was important to the response that it wasn't just a media response, but that we were reaching out to uh, elected officials, to community leaders, um, so that they knew before television showed up what was going on. And that's uh, oftentimes, I think when we talk about media response or crisis response, we forget that it's not, it's not just the media response. It is a, a much more holistic response that considers all the stakeholders who are going to care about what's going on. And that's the function. We talked about the Joint Information Center a little earlier, but that is often the function of the liaison office, which is another section uh, of the staff that supports the unified command in ICS. Yeah, also a position that I rely on Nexus Northwest to provide me in the early stages of a response. Exactly. And, and what I like to say is that we have the same messages. We have the same stories that we need to share, but we have different audiences. For the Joint Information Center, the audience is the community at large, which we reach through press releases on the website, through a social media program, and through the media. The media is really a tool uh, for us to get the story out. And the liaison office has a different audience. It has elected officials. It has community leaders. Uh, depending on what the event is, a school district could become a stakeholder, certainly local and county governments are stakeholders. I mean, you just go down the list, special interest groups, wildlife groups, uh, liaison officers have a very broad group of stakeholders that they need to be aware of and accommodate, in addition to the traditional li liaison between um, the response and uh, the agencies. So it's a big job. And oftentimes, uh, the response that you just mentioned, we had one liaison officer, but was working very hard to reach as many of those stakeholder groups as he could. And uh, it's as much um, an indicator of how successful we are as what our news clips look like. So I, I always, uh, I, I give a big plug for people who do liaison and outreach work. So when these events kick off, 
you get that first phone call, what are the first steps that are likely to happen? Um, you know, it will depend uh, in Washington State, Oregon, Alaska, California, which are the areas that I work in the most. Um, I want to get hold of the state agency right away, and I want to get a hold of the Coast Guard right away so that we are working in tandem even before there's an official joint information center. I, I want to make sure that uh, we're coordinating on our messages, that we all have each other's cell phone number, because particularly in this virtual world that we're in right now, uh, we may never see each other face to face. So we need to establish that method of communication among ourselves and, and um, get a feel for how big this may be, uh, talk to an IC, an incident commander, make sure that within that first hour, two hours, we're all on the same page as far as what we need to be doing. And then it's up to us to decide how many people do we need to bring in? What kind of workforce do we need in that first day, particularly, to make sure that we are communicating, that we are getting hold of our community leaders? So those are the first steps. Find out who are the people in the other agencies, because we will then become a joint information center. And uh, how many more folks are we going to need? And in this, the incident that you talked about, you... Uh, I think very wisely decided that we needed to have a few extra people on that response so that we could handle everything that came in. And I would say it was just the right number, the right people. It worked. It worked. And this virtual world, and I think this is going to hold true even after we all go back to a more normal face-to-face -face, uh, operations after the after the pandemic, but, but in this virtual world, what we've set up is that we have a Microsoft Teams uh, team kind of warmed up and idling, ready to be the virtual command post. And it's got a joint information center channel already mm -hmm. set up in it. And in those early hours as I activate uh, yourself, as we get a hold of uh, state agencies, we get a hold of the Coast Guard, we're going to be sending out invites, we're going to bring you together there. And even if we then start to establish a physical command post, my guess is that the JIC will remain virtual, or at least mostly virtual, for the first day or, or two. And parts yeah, I, of it may remain virtual throughout. It, it could. It easily could. And uh, that gives us that opportunity to, um, to really start getting the message out as quickly as possible. And then we still may. And again, every, everything is situationally determined. We still may decide that we've got to have some people in the command post uh, if, in fact, a command post is set up and it doesn't stay a virtual command post. I, you know, I, we've done now, Dan, you and I have done a number of these uh, response. Well, not a response yet. I haven't done a virtual response. You may have, but I have not, but we've done a fair number of virtual exercises 
and uh, they've worked well. Uh, there, there were a few hiccups <laughs> the first couple of times, but we've worked that out. And um, uh, we may not need to actually set up a physical command post. It's going to be interesting once we're at the point where we could, whether we will. And I don't know that we can predict that right now. No, I don't think that we can either, Suzanne. But I know that what has happened is that over the last uh, eight months or so, we have all set up our home offices. We've you know, picked up new hardware. We're spending time on camera all the time. My favorite news program, the PBS NewsHour, with their uh, reporters and hosts all uh, joining remotely from, from their dwellings. And, and doing it quite well, doing interviews, bringing people in. And I don't know that that has to change as we mm -hmm. uh, are relieved of the burden of the pandemic. And one of the things that I'm going to try in our uh, Washington State Maritime Cooperative worst case exercise in May, where you are going to be our PIO for the exercise, <laughs> is that we're going to a live stream a press conference uh, to a kind of a dummy YouTube channel. And I'm excited about that because, that's, that's, you know- It's why, gonna be a challenge, but we'll do it. Yeah, why are we gonna do it? Well, because we can. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's and the more that we test those individual actions that uh, are the way that we normally communicate with our audiences, whomever they might be, the more we practice that, as I said, when the when the whistle goes off, we're going to be in better shape. Uh, we still always need to have that situational awareness, and we will always have a surprise. I don't think there's a. I've never been on a response that I haven't had something that has surprised me. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's that's why we do this kind of work. It's uh, it's interesting work. It's uh, I believe very valuable work that we do, and. I am pleased that all of us, whether it's uh, those of us who represent or work for industry or the state agencies or the Coast Guard, the federal agencies, everybody's getting much, much better at this. And it's because we have, uh, we practice all the time. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's something that the general public is aware of as much as we are, certainly. But uh, there's, there is a lot of investment, both time and monetary resources invested in doing this job, whether it's what you do as an instant commander or what I do as a PIO or uh, uh, other folks are doing in operations and um, planning. Uh, there's a lot of effort going into doing this the right way and learning, learning from uh, the experiences of exercises and responses. We talked a little about uh, talking to the media, but what are some of the other ways that the community learns about the activities taking place in a response? Well, we talked about social media and that uh, of all of the things that we do is where we, I believe, still are developing the way that we do it. So we, we're going to have social media. We're going to have a website that almost goes without saying. And the more I work with clients, the the more uh, we are accepting that a website is an essential tool 
to a response of any size. And there are platforms out there that many companies have that are up and ready to go, that the Coast Guard has, that the state agencies have. So the website, the website is huge because we can get a lot of information on a website. We can build it out constantly. We build it out if we're doing it the right way. And all of our social media can point to that website. Well, we're limited to uh, how much we can do in social media, but we are not limited to the amount of information that we can put on a website. So I'm a huge proponent of you get that website up absolutely as fast as you can. And uh, I advise everybody to have a contract in place with somebody that can do it. It's usually not the time that you want to start developing your own internal website, uh, but uh, get with a contractor that can, can do it and can supply some personnel and you're ready to go uh, as soon as something happens. So there's, there's those, that's the social media and the website are the primary tools uh, for a JIC, plus, of course, the traditional interviews, uh, press conferences. But then on the other hand, you look at what the liaison office can do. And I want to say uh, before I go too much further, because I don't want to forget it, um, I really like to see a liaison office and a joint information center co-located and working very closely together. As I mentioned earlier, we have the same story to tell. We have basically the same messages. We have different audiences. So let's be close. Let's have somebody from a liaison office be very aware of what the chick is learning from social media. Um, if uh, a local mayor decides to use his or her social media account to either praise or criticize a response, the liaison officer needs to know that. So deep cooperation is really essential. Uh, but then the liaison um, can do town hall meetings, working with the JIC, can do um, elected officials uh, phone briefings or now Zoom briefings. Uh, they can have open houses. Uh, there are just any number of um, things that are beyond just that press release and the press conference to get out into the communities, become aware of what the concerns are. And you do that by talking to people. Uh, you, uh, I often say that one of the big um, developments in crisis communication over the last decade or so is that I, I go back to that Exxon uh, or to that ARCO drill after the Exxon Valdez and everything there was about pushing out information. We wrote press releases and we put those little guys on that fax and, and assumed that they were going to get where they were supposed to go. But as we become uh, a little more practice and a little wiser about our communication, it's not only putting that out, but it's listening very carefully and bringing data in so that it's a two-way communication now. It's not just pushing. It's also pulling in information and using that to help uh, decide what your strategy is going to be. What are you hearing? What are you seeing on social media that may not be accurate? And what are you going to do about it? What's your strategy? So I see us going from uh, maybe 20 years ago doing really tactical responses in communication to becoming much more strategic in the way that we're communicating. 
Um, so I, I, I forgot what your question was, but I wonder if that answered it. I might have forgotten what my question was too, but I, <laughs> but the information was great. But you're, as you're going about telling the story, how do you decide what to actually say to the media? What's the process for developing a good message? Well, I'll tell you one thing that does not make a good message, and that is reciting a lot of facts. And I, that's just, that just flies in the face of so many of the people that I work with in, uh, and it's not just in oil spill response, but it's in uh, virtually any area where I'm, where I'm uh, helping with the response or, or counseling clients on how to respond is there, there is, I, I think this security of blanket, if you will, if, if I tell how much uh, how many oil birds that we've rehabilitated, if I tell uh, how many gallons we've picked up, if I tell how far out we put boom, how many feet of boom, if I tell all that, if that's my story, then people are going to know that we're doing a good job. And it's just not. It's just not. Uh, a, a good story, a good message, um, it begins by expressing concern. And I think we're getting better with it. I see our incident commanders getting better at that, but it's been a little bit of an uphill uh, climb to help people understand the facts support a statement of concern. And uh, it's concern for the community, for safety, safety of operations, safety of community, for wildlife for the environment, for the economy. You could just go down the list of things that touch people in their everyday life. So start with a, a, a statement that shows you understand that, that that's important to you as a responder and that you're developing your strategies with that in mind. And Dan, you know, because you put together those 201s that that is uh, safety for the community and the responders is always going to be the top of the list. So that needs to be at the top of the list when we're doing when we're doing our messaging. And um, you, I think it's important to relate in, especially the early communication, what the objectives are of the response. And because they tell the story. They say that we're concerned about safety, that we are concerned and have an objective of stopping the flow, that we have an objective of protecting wildlife and the economy, and that we will keep our stakeholders engaged and informed. And if we look at the, those bullet points on a 201, we've got our initial messages. And um, one of the advantages to doing that is that it also helps our unified command, our incident commander, our FOSC, SOSC, understand that as communicators, we understand what they're facing. So it, it, there's, there's a dual benefit for us in the JIC, for me as a PIO, to go to those objectives on a 201 and use those to help develop my story of what it is that we are doing to make this situation better then I can use all the facts I want, but I can't start out by saying, well, gosh, we laid 500 feet of boom this morning and uh, we're gonna do another thousand this afternoon. And they just say, what? 
What does what does that even mean? So it's stepping back. It is putting yourself. Imagine that you live in that community, and oftentimes we do, or that uh, your kids go to a school where there there's uh, possible fumes from a refinery fire. Put yourself in their place. What do you care about? And then it gets really easy to tell the story of the response, what you're doing to make their lives better, to protect them, to make sure their families are safe. In this fast moving information environment where every single person with a video camera in their phone is a reporter, they're all throwing their videos up on TikTok and Pinterest and God, I'm old, so I don't even I don't even know what the most what the, the current the current, <laughs> the current hip thing. Even though the fact that I use the word hip is probably a problem, right? Join your I, I gotta get out my cane, you young folks today. I tell you. Uh, um, but but things are fast, right? I mean, we when I first fast. started in this business, the big thing was a press release and a press conference. Well, nobody, Correct. nobody cares. About, I mean, that we don't have time for that. Uh, I mean, it fits into a place eventually, it does. but that's not the big part of, uh, mm -hmm. of, of day one. And so I know when in real events, when you're my PIO, we have a, uh, and I'm the incident commander, we have a quick discussion and then you're empowered to go out and tell our story. And you only come back to me if there's a problem exactly. right, or a clarification. Well, have you had trouble uh, getting the authorization or the information that you need in order to speak for the response, in order to get this message out? What advice would you give to incident commanders and, and members of the Unified Command to make sure that they're able to tell this story? Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, I'll start with the good news. It's getting better. It's getting better. And it's because there has been a lot of effort driven by social media, I think, a lot of effort to be more responsive more quickly. And uh, so there are several ways that we do that. Um, in the state of Washington, and, I, and I've used this, um, this strategy in other places now also, uh, there's, there's, it's almost like a form that authorizes the Joint Information Center and, and I guess by association liaison officer to um, use any information that's on the 201 because that's an approved document going in, uh, 232s, um, the two uh, 209s when those are available, um, that these uh, ICS forms that are signed off by the Unified Command we can use anything in those forms, particularly on social media, without having to go back and get additional permission. That has helped a lot. That is, that's a form that I take up to a unified command. I, I say, if there's something on here that you're uncomfortable with, just mark it off, sign it, give it back to me. And, and I've, now I can start running my gym. Now I can start uh, having someone answer what's on Twitter. And I can get uh, a really quick press statement together. So we're getting better with that. Some incident commanders are more comfortable with that than others. 
And it, it's a learning process. Um, nobody wants to make a mistake, especially in those beginning hours, but we have to just uh, kind of take a deep breath, trust that we know what we're doing and what we're saying, and that you've got a PIO that's got some experience and is not going to put something out there that's going to cause difficulty later on, and just get out there and start communicating. Uh, so as I said, we're better, we're better, but we can always improve on that. Well, trust that, Suzanne Ligoni, that's the big thing, right? I mean, I have worked with you for a long time, and I trust you to manage that joint information center. But if I walked into a command post and met a new person in that role that I didn't know, then I can easily see that I might not have that level of trust mm -hmm. that, and, and would want to see what they're going to put out ahead of time un, until that trust was built up on the job. And so I think it's so important to you know, train these PIOs and ha include them in these exercises mm -hmm. so that that level of trust exists before the incident actually happens. You don't get those first two or three hours back. You just don't. No, you don't. And it's, uh, you're absolutely right about that, Dan. And that's why I, I'm a huge proponent of exercises. And Certainly, a certain number of exercises and a certain content and exercises is mandated. But I, I praise the companies, and I and you're associated with them. I'm associated with them that are willing to go that extra step. Uh, if you look at what the state of Washington requires a joint information center to do, it's not a long list. But let's go way beyond that. Let's do way more than the bare minimum in order to get certification. And I'm pleased that the people I work with are very willing to do that. They invest in that. I mean, you think of some of the exercises we've done where we've had joint information centers upwards of 30 and 40 people. And that's how you learn how to do this job. Um, and the, the other advantage to that is um, it's not only the relationship between a PIO and an incident commander or a unified command, but it's relationships within a joint information center because you're coming together with the the fact that it's joint means that you have you have the responsible party present you have agencies local federal state agencies you might depending on what it is you can have somebody from park service depending on if you think back to um uh oh i've just lost the name of the big response down in california where you had two FOSCs. You had EPA because part of this bill was refugio, the refugio bill. Part of this bill was on land and part of it was water. So you've got the Coast Guard and the EPA in your joint information center. Um, and uh, in Washington, Oregon, California, you're likely to have tribal interests in both your liaison office and your joint information center and your unified command. If you're in Alaska, you're going to have Alaska Native interests represented. So you've got a lot of different um, responders who have different mandates coming into this organization. Um, so it's it's up to the PIO and a JIP manager and a liaison officer to make sure that everybody understands uh, not only the level of um, ability for the people who are sitting in those chairs but also the culture that they bring in with them. And uh, 
when they when they walk into that command post, virtual or otherwise, they take off whatever that hat was they had coming in and they put on the unified command and the joint information center hat. But uh, the hat that they took off is sitting down next to them and it's still part of their reality. So I think one of the one of the big learnings that I had years ago was you can never completely divorce yourself from where you came because you still have a responsibility to the agency or the company or the organization that you represent when you come into that joint information center. So it's just it's those are the nuances that you that you you work your way through. And it's it's what can make this very rewarding work when you get that. You get a unity, unity of vision, um, and go forward with it. But uh, always remembering that someday you do have to go back to the office. Suzanne, is there a key issue that you look at managing during a response? One of them is to identify those stakeholders. Be really careful about that and be very thoughtful about that. Who are the stakeholders? What do they care about? And how are we going to reach out to them? And uh, also balancing pace, because you're going to have a lot more need for information than you have information available, particularly in those first couple of days. So you've got to, you've got to balance. You've got to keep a good pace going. Um, we've got to have the capacity to control rumors. We didn't talk much about that, Dan, but Social media has just brought the rumor mill right into the unified command and into the command post. So not everything on social media is truthful? Not quite. Oh. Not quite. Every once in a while something will sneak in. And when we do when we do those things, then we're we're establishing our credibility. We are um, I, I use the term license to operate very broadly because it's not just for the RP, it's for all of us that uh, we, if, if we lose credibility, then uh, uh, our audiences, our communities are, um, are not going to appreciate what it is that we're doing. And finally, um, calm fears. When something happens, it doesn't matter what it is, people in uh, neighbors are gonna be concerned about their safety. So our job, my job as a PIO, I view, as pulling together everything I can to calm fears in a community and to really honor their concern. It's real. They're not making this stuff up. And if we keep that in the back of our minds at all times, uh, we will know how to tell a story. We will know how to develop messages. We will know how to reach out so that we're doing the right thing for our community and for the response. Well, thank you, Suzanne Lagoni, for taking the time to be with us. I know you keep talking about retirement, but we're not going to allow that to happen. Well, thank you, dear. You're on the hook. <laughs> I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tactics Meeting. If you enjoy the content, please send an email or a tweet. Share it with a friend. Wear a mask. And as always... Don't do anything stupid.